Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. My friends who listen to Future Primitive, I am uh, on the phone with Philip Cargom, who lives in Sussex, England, with his wife Stephanie. From an early age, Philip studied with Ross Nichols, the founder of the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. He has a degree in psychology from the University College London and trained in psychotherapy for adults at the Institute of Psychosynthesis and in play therapy for children with Dr. Rachel Piney. He also trained in Montessori education with the London Montessori Centre and founded the Luz Montessori School. In 1988, he was asked to lead the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, and he combines his role in the Order with writing, giving talks, and workshops. He is the author of many books and audio programs. I'm not going to mention those books here because... Uh, You'll be able to go to his website and check it all out after you've listened to our conversation. So, Philip, I would just like to ask you more than what is Druidry, is how your soul and your heart became uh, involved with making the choice of Druidry. Thank you. The, the striking straight to the heart of things, Joanna. Yes. Mm. It's, well, you know, I was, I was born in 1952, and so, so I lived through, I became a teenager in the 1960s, and there was this tremendous wave of spirituality that washed over the planet then. And um, when I was 11, um, it was the first, I suppose, time of awakening for me. I, I remember my father knew Christmas Humphreys, who was the who had started the Buddhist Society in London, mm. and um, so there were various books on Buddhism in the house, and I read um, a biography of the Buddha, the life of the Buddha, which um, suggested to me or, or told me that the, the 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 only thing and the best thing I could do was seek enlightenment. Everything else was. Um, not so interesting, and so so from that moment onwards, I decided that that was what I wanted to do. And um, at the same time, he, my father, was surrounded by people who were interested in all sorts of different kinds of spirituality, and he worked for the old chief druid in London. He was running a college there, so I met the old chief druid when I was eleven, and then gradually started to um, get to know him and and to, to to read about druidism. And what interested me was this idea of the, the magical landscape. And, 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 you know, London in the 1950s and early 60s was very drab, really. 
<laughs> everything was in black and white. Yes. And then at some point, the colour got switched on wow. um, towards the end of the 1960s. And, um, and this was all... So, so, so my individual journey of discovering Druidism and the magical landscape of Britain was embedded in the wider journey of young people at that time discovering psychedelics and opening to other levels of reality. So, so the two went hand in hand for me. Um, and, and that's how... And I've always retained an interest in Eastern traditions. But um, somehow Druidry has spoken to me um, about the beauties of the natural world and wanting to preserve those and, and protect them. And um, so that's the path that I followed in this life. You see, it's very exciting for me to be talking with you because I think and feel a lot about the fact that many of us Europeans and therefore Euro-Americans are really homesick for our indigenous roots. And we don't know where we come from. And so I'm... uh, I'm going to ask you to speak to that, to speak to our homesickness for who we are indigenously. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, here we are in the 21st century, facing all the problems that we face. And somebody might very well turn around and say, in the midst of this, you're suggesting that we look at a pre-Christian spirituality, some ancient tradition. You're suggesting we go way back into the past, uh, which is just ridiculous. Instead, you should look forward. You should look at um, uh, you know, some sort of more futuristic kind of uh, approach to religion. But in fact, the way I look at it is, is this, that um, the salmon uh, returns to its spawning grounds at a certain time, at a certain stage in its life cycle. It goes back to where it was born from, and it swims upstream, and it um, lays its eggs and, uh, and then dies. And its body forms the nutrition and nourishment for the next generation of salmon. And I think at a, at a cultural level, we've reached a stage in the story of humanity where we need to go back, to go swim back upstream, shedding all the layers of accretions that we've developed through our culture and our history and our religions to get back to the really early roots of our spirituality, which were fed by you know, the sky and the sea and our intimate relationship with life and nature. And in order to experience a kind of death and rebirth, um, and, and, and so that's how I understand that feeling of homesickness, mm-hmm. that at some level it can be, and this is, I think, where one has to be careful that it doesn't become stuck in questions of race. This is where it gets tricky because, because people, I think, limit that sense of homesickness to just a, a racial and ethnic sense. Right. I think it's much deeper than that. And in fact, many of us have quite complicated roots across a number of different ethnic groups and cultures. So I think it's, it's even deeper than that. It's going back to the very, very, very 
early times, which is why, of course, I love the, the, the name of your, your um, project, <laughs> Future Primitive. Yes. There's a way in which, you know, when you look at those wonderful cave paintings in Lascaux mm-hmm. or the Chauvet Caves in France, yes. they're in fantastically, some of the oldest, the oldest artwork in the world, and yet it feels incredibly modern at the same time. And I think that's what people who resonate with Druidry today or who, 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 who are attracted by it are actually, uh, it's a very contemporary uh, kind of desire to be in connection with ancient roots, but also to be incredibly contemporary and modern at the same time. So the ancient ones made up a... Um, a mythology that was based on their connection to the earth. Mm. Can you tell us that story in a modern way? In other words, uh, what is your connection to the earth and the sky and the seas? And how do you describe that as your spirituality? back, if, if I follow that back, um, to this, it's about, in the final analysis, it's about my relationship with the light and dark, with darkness and with light. Mm. And so when I go to sleep at night, I'm returning back into the cave. I'm going down into the darkness of the womb, but also of the cave and of the night sky. And there's a kind of nourishment there that I can feel when I pray close to the earth, when I uh, uh, bend down onto the earth and touch the palms of my hands onto the soil and sink my head into the ground, or when I go into a cave, or when I fall asleep. And then, like a... the darkness of the forest and then the bright 
flames of the fire in the in the middle of our circle. And as you look, as as you know, you know that wonderful primal experience of when you're sitting around the fire and you you look into the faces of your friends who are seated around you. Mm. And there's there's nothing more heartwarming and and um, uh, ecstatic really than, than than just that experience of community in that shared shared experience of being in the darkness and the light together. Mm. So, going back to our roots, this mm. this druid experience is very much about rhythm, perhaps about falling back into rhythm, into the rhythm of of life and nature. Exactly, there's, there's a, and if you think of that rhythm, if you think of rhythm, there's a way in which there is contraction and release there's holding and letting go holding and letting go and you know our body works like this our physiology works like this and that's why dance is so wonderful because in dance there's this process of, of of contracting and then releasing as you open wide your arms and so on and and that's what i think a spiritual path helps you to do if it's if it's good, if it's the right one for you, it helps you to get into that rhythm. Mm-hmm. So that um, on the one hand, it holds you, it, it, it supports you, particularly in times of crisis or when you need to be held. And then it lets you go into the wider world when you need that freedom. And it just moves rhythmically to and fro. And when it when it when you when you get slightly out of relationship with it, then you then the holding becomes too tight, and you have to struggle to get free, and and the letting go becomes too loose, and you feel lost and without mm-hmm. boundaries, and you need you need to come back to your center again. So, uh, Philip, what is mm-hmm. it to live as a druid in the modern world? To, to use that openness to nature, that communion with nature in the city? Well, you see, the, the, the interesting Druidry is, a, is, is, is quite an unusual um, path, or a path isn't maybe even the right word for it. It's, it's a culture, it's more even perhaps a culture than a the spiritual tradition, although that, that element is in there as well, because because of, of, of its resonances in so many different areas of activity, um, because as well as the connection with nature, there is the connection with 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 story and with art, and we we have an idea in Druidry or a belief that creativity is like the flow of a river. And we call it Awen, A-W-E-N, yes. which is, means flowing spirit or blessings of the gods. And we believe it's a kind of elixir that we can cultivate and stimulate uh, within us. And you know that strange process that occurs when you feel inspired to write a poem or a story or, or to do anything creative? Um, it seems to come from outside you sometimes. And there's a part of you that is even startled 
that the process is occurring. You, you get this interesting process where you know, you're speaking or writing or, or doing some painting or whatever, and a part of you says, good heavens, I didn't know that I, I could do this or that I knew this. Um, and, and our belief is that Arwen flows to us from the other world and that we can cultivate that flow. And um, so there's a whole area of Druidry which is involved with the arts and creativity with song and story and, and, um, and music and, and, and so on. And um, so in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a way that can be practiced in the city too, because of course what the city brings is the tremendous advantages of civilization and of, of being able to meet with many people and to have a very rich cultural life. And, and, and so there are plenty of druids now in cities, as it were, and they're often involved in artistic and creative pursuits. But they also have this link with nature and this love of nature. I would love to ask you about integrity. What does integrity feel like and look like for you? Yes, absolutely, and and I think um, it's very important. And I love asking this question 
to somebody who has been in practice for many, many, yes. many years. So yes, because integrity as well. You see, yes, integrity also means its derivation comes from wholeness. Yes, integrity means being being whole, and and for so many of us, we are by nature, almost by human nature, we are broken because. Life seems to be a journey which involves pain and suffering, and that involves brokenness. And then we are taking a journey, not like Humpty Dumpty to put ourselves together again, <laughs> but that suggests there's something wrong with being broken. I think it, mm-hmm. if we can embrace our brokenness, yes. uh, that then then we discover it's very paradoxical. We're dealing with paradox here. Yes. And, and so integrity and lack of integrity, wholeness and brokenness, we have to somehow embrace both. I suppose that's what I meant about the, the, the risk or the danger of it becoming a tyranny, uh, a, a, a kind of moral precept that has this tyranny over us, because we have to accept our own human frailty and that, that sometimes, perhaps even often, we may act out of integrity. Mm-hmm. because we're fallible human beings. Mm-hmm. And then we have to be loving towards that fallible part of ourselves and try to heal that and move forward. Mm-hmm. Do you think nature is valuable? H- hugely. I think, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I followed Rudri, I think, is because um, whilst I love the path of detachment uh-huh. and of, of knowing or sensing that the material world is at one level an illusion, that reality is far greater and grander than this physical world of manifestation we experience. While feeling that in my soul and having that experience, at the same time, I treasure and love and honor and revere the natural world so much and the embodied reality of the natural world. I think a spirituality for it to work for me needs to needs to embrace that too. Mm-hmm. Can't simply relate to the material world as an illusion or as a limited sphere of existence. And, and so Druidism appeals to me because it acknowledges completely the existence of the other world and of the deeper realities beyond the physical and so on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it places um, the concept of be here now, mm-hmm. of being here embodied in the physical universe now as, as utterly sacred and, and central. The... Um the tender and poignant fallibility of everything. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes. Yes, so that one can, one can be grounded in one's relationship with the changeless, but, the, but also with the changing. Mm. So the fact that the material world is changing all the time should not or does not either invalidate it or render it in, in second place. So in other words, when, when I hold uh, my wife in my arms, the fact that she is going to die as a human being, as I am going to die, 
doesn't render her somehow <laughs> in a secondary position because because she is changing. Mm. And that applies to, you know, holding a flower or holding a child or anything embodied mm. is, is, is going to die and is going to change. But that doesn't render it somehow less significant or sacred than the changeless, which never dies. Mm. Philip, joy comes around uh, a lot in your in your teachings and writings, and so I would love it if you could encourage us with your views on joy. Mm. Yes, and I saw on your on your website. I think you talk about joy and and, and how this is a sort of central. Um, inspiration for you mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and of course here's the paradox that it, we we have to experience its opposite as well and 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 yet there's a way in which when we experience joy it transcends all the suffering and that we might have experienced in our lives and it's like bathing in some clear pool isn't it really it's like it's like diving into the ocean and and being refreshed by a kind of water that is is both highly personal and also completely impersonal and transpersonal as well. And um, and it's it's a source we 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 in, in Druidry this idea of of Arwen being an elixir. Um, this flowing sort of spirit that brings creativity. There's another elixir we believe exists too, which is called Nuifre, which is N-W-Y-F-R-E. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's more like life force, if you like. And, and, but in a way, both the life force and the creative flow of spirit actually have their source in, in, in the one. And that one is pure joy, pure joy that flows through the universe and manifests in all sorts of different ways. It manifests in the way we grew up, physical bodies grow and the plants grow in the soil and the way trees grow and spread their leaves out and branches out wide. And also in the way we paint pictures and make music and song. And it's, it's joy working itself through the universe and through life in all sorts of different ways, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and, and, uh, and so on. And, and, um, so I think placing joy at the center of one's spiritual life is, is a wonderful way to proceed. So I experience joy as all the waterfalls in the world. Yes. Joy like a waterfall, yes. Mm, exactly. Um, there's, a, there's an image of, um, in the, um, the Ace of Cups in the tarot deck. Yes. And, and the, the, the Ace of Cups, because the Aces are wonderful because the Ace is, is, is the number one. And even there you have this beauty of the fact that the number one is on the one hand unique and single, as, as each of us is. So we are unique, we're number one, single. But also the, the word 
one means everything. We are one. And so singularity and universality is conveyed in the same idea of oneness. So this wonderful sense of plenitude and singular is, is conveyed in the idea of the ace. And then cups. So this image um, in a particular uh, tarot deck, we've, we've designed a tarot deck and, and called the Druidcraft Tarot, and it, and it has a, a, a chalice, a holy grail, really, a chalice, overflowing with water. And the water flows into it and flows out. Yeah. And... Um, there's that sense of of abundance and overflowing joy that 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 fills one's heart and then and then and then just continues flowing and brings bringing such joy. Life continues. Life is. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, should we talk about um, the twenty first and twenty second of June coming up soon? Mm -hmm. And, oh, yes, yes. and how how we can celebrate and how you celebrate in Druid festivals. Ah, okay, okay, yes. Yeah. Well, coming up for the summer solstice, well, if you're in the northern hemisphere, it's the summer solstice. Yes. If you're in the southern hemisphere, it's the winter solstice. So already one has this beautiful uh, sense of balance where the opposites are in a dancing in relation to each other. So one half of the globe is uh, celebrating the, the longest night and uh, the time of the winter solstice, and the other half is celebrating the longest day. And so if being up here in the northern hemisphere, um, what we do in, in, in the Druid tradition is we, we, we have three ceremonies that we do. The, the first is, is a vigil that we, we, we gather at midnight, and um, because it's the shortest night, We only have about four hours in which to in uh, uh, of darkness, and and so we will light a fire. Depending, it different depends on your circumstances. But you know, for instance, uh, for us last year, we we went up on the highest point on a hillside outside our, our town here and had a fire, mm -hmm. and then with friends and uh, gathered around and sat around the fire and told stories. And some people would go to sleep for a few hours. And about the symbolism or about 
specific details of ritual, you can, one of the things we've been doing here at home is just having informal rituals with our friends, people who don't follow the Druid way, but who, who love nature, but who, who are uh, not following any particular spiritual path, perhaps, or different mm-hmm. spiritual path. And we will perhaps have a gathering, you know, one winter solstice, we just had a, a party at our house, about 30 or 40 people. And then at a certain moment, we just stopped the music and we said to everybody, we'd just love to share with you just for five minutes what, what we do in, in Druidry. Uh, if you're up for this, everybody said yes. And so I said, okay, well, what we do is we just, first of all, we just sit in the darkness and just and just drink in the the support and the nourishment of the, of the dark and just, to, to just let go completely. And so we turned over all the lights out and sat in the darkness just for a few minutes. <clears throat> and then Stephanie lit a candle, a single candle. And uh, we had a lot of little tea lights by them. And, and we said, and now, you know, the sun is reborn on the night. And we read a little, a few lines from our ritual, you know, poetic lines. And and then invited our friends just to light a tea candle. And um, so we ended up with 30 of us sitting in our sitting room, you know, with, with a ring of little tiny flames. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the atmosphere was just complete silence. Everybody just uh, drinking in that moment of, of stillness and joy. And so I think it's good to do these kind of informal, simple rituals as well, not to feel you have to study for years and unearth all sorts of ancient uh, law and technique. How can a certain spiritual maturity help us as people to go from fearfulness to fearlessness? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you when you look at when you look at the world situation and you watch the news on the television and you read you read what is happening to the forests and the oceans and yeah. the air. It, it, you would have to be inhuman not to feel despair, I think. Uh, the, the the natural human uh, reaction to this is one of, of, of fearfulness and despair because because look at the way we are messing things up so gigantically um, and that's on the grand scale and then if we look in, in, in at a closer scale in terms of whatever particular difficulties and challenges and tragedies that are occurring around us in our in our neighborhood and perhaps even in our family and so on so so I think I think one of the first things, and this is, I suppose, where my psychological uh, training and psychotherapeutic training experience come, comes into play, is that there's no way that you can deny these feelings because they're normal. And if we if we try to deny them or suppress them or simply transcend them, we are cutting ourselves off from our inherent humanity. So somehow we have to find a way to allow these feelings within us and at the same time to taste joy and to be able to engage with life with a sense of hope and fearlessness. Mm -hmm. And the question then is, well, how do you do that? 
And for me, the way you do that is by tasting joy. When you've tasted the transcendental or the profound or the spiritual or the soul or however you want to term it, but when, when you have tasted the deeper reality, if we can use that phrase, um, then you know that this is the this is this is the basis of reality, and that somehow a story is being played out that is very difficult and very painful and hard for many people. But the underlying reality is 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 the true one that you that that acts like a kind of Ariadne's thread mm-hmm. that will always keep you connected. So to give us an example, say a relationship when you fall in love with somebody. You, you have this incredible sense of connection and love and trust and a deep bond that, that, um, that is established, that is beyond words, is felt deep in the heart and the soul. Then as you are in relationship with a person, you may well encounter difficulties where, where you have problems in the relationship, it's not always easy and so on. But... Hopefully, and in the in, 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 in the best cases, you are able to return every so often, like the tide coming back, you wash back, you return back to that deep inner connection you have. So that however big the fight you have, however big the argument you have with your partner, deep down there's this basic experience that the two of you have of that love between you that keeps you together. And that's the secret to long-term relationships. There's no way you can have a long-term relationship with somebody and not go through difficult patches and, and, and fall out with each other and fight and have all sorts of stories happening. But the secret of succeeding in that relationship is to, is to somehow have developed that bond so you can return to it and find it again, however far off course you go. And so I think if we take that as a kind of concrete example that will be familiar to us in the world of personal experience, and we take that in the wider sense in, in relation to life, is that if we've had a profound ex- spiritual experience of, of love and ecstasy and joy and an experience of oneness, then however fearful and difficult life becomes, that's a kind of primal experience that we know in our hearts that, that gives us hope however difficult things become. And that's the and that's why I'm so passionate about the spiritual life and, and following a spiritual path because I believe you know we need support in that and we need reminding of it as well. It's not as if we can have one incredibly profound spiritual experience and then, um, in a sense, it will last us. I believe it will last all your life because if you can remember it. But you need support and you need reminding of that, and ideally you need to, to, to repeat it at various times and so on. We need support, and that's what a spiritual path should do, is it should give you that support so that you can keep your hope even in, in difficult situations. What is the role of the feminine in Druidism, Philip? Thank 
um, uh, the Druid roots and the, the story, etc. But because these were times in Europe that were dominated by a patriarchal culture, Druidism became uh, became patriarchal in the sense that it was almost exclusively men who pursued it. And we have all those engravings of bearded men at Stonehenge, and we have those photographs from the early days of of men at Stonehenge and so on. So, so associated in our minds, or in many people's minds, is the stereotype of Druidism being male. But it's not. And um, one of the things we noticed uh, when we started to uh, publish our course in, in training in, in Druidism that, mm-hmm. that we publish now in seven languages and send all over the world is that the numbers of women and men subscribing were exactly equal, sometimes uncannily so. So when we analyzed the first 200 members of our group, we saw that there were 100 men and 100 women. Mm-hmm. And then a while later, well, there were you know 600 and there were 300 men and 300 women. Um, and now, now I think the balance has tipped slightly towards the, the, the female and there are more women involved in Druidry than, than men. And, um, and so this is a good sign, I think. And the role that the... We have to get be careful about pitting one gender against another yes. uh, and blaming everything on a particular cause like patriarchy, I think. Uh, but but and, 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 and I think even think that just in the last few years, we've noticed a sort of shift towards people where many people, people on the, if you like to say, the leading edge or people who've been immersed in spirituality and alternative culture for the last you know, 20 or 30 years. There's this kind of move beyond gender where people are realizing that even framing things in terms of gender isn't perhaps so helpful after all. So that if I want to talk about my gentler side, to call, to call the gentle, soft side of me feminine and the, the more you know, logical and analytical and tougher side of me masculine, is perhaps not doing a service to either gender, really. Yes. And that it's not necessary to evoke concepts of gender into who, into necessarily into who we are as people. Um, I, think that's, that, I think that's quite new. I think in the last few years I've noticed that in the comments we're getting and the letters we're getting and the, and, uh, the emails and so on, and, and just, just discussions amongst people generally. I, just as a, just to, again, to, to make this very concrete and specific, I was yeah. giving a talk about this at one of our camps and, and I was saying how do, how do people feel about this and one of the men said that he was dancing in a seven rhythms um, with five rhythms maybe five rhythms worked mm-hmm. yeah. um, the other day and a woman had come up to him and said it's lovely to see you opening to your feminine side mm-hmm. and he said I was just dancing in a soft and gentle way and why should that, why should that be deemed feminine rather than masculine, it's got nothing really to do with gender. And I thought about the men's group that I'm in, and all the men are incredibly nurturing and supportive and gentle with each other and confrontative if necessary. But also, And again, I don't think it's helpful even to think of that in terms of it being feminine, a feminine kind of behavior. Or something. It's, it's, it's nurturing, and we all have that capacity within us. So I think it's, it's important to respect the feminine to see the role of the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine 
in the whole scheme of things, but then also to transcend that and to see us more in terms of one people on one earth. Beautifully said. Absolutely beautiful. So my last question to you would be something that I am absolutely passionate about. And it's to ask you, what is magic? What is magic to you, Philip? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a subject that I adore as well. And it's one of the reasons why I've been following the Druid path. It's a magical, it's a spiritual path, but it's also a magical path. And put very simply, I think, you know, there there are two broad categories categories of magic, if you like. One is uh, magic that happens without any volition at all. It's the magic of being alive. It's the magic of being a human being in this wonderful magical universe and all the extraordinary things that we experience and so on. And that's probably the most important magic for us to open ourselves to. And to do that, it's simply a question of opening ourselves and, and, and and allowing ourselves to bathe in the magic of being alive and, 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 the, and, and the way nature works and the, everything we see around us. And then, and then there's another kind of magic, which is actually, if you like, active, which is that we can do magic. And, and, and there are, and, 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 and there are, um, there are three, you can, you can classify these really in three different areas, the three different kinds of magic. There's the magic of making, which is, which is essentially the magic of creativity. The fact that the Arwen can flow into me, that an idea, that perhaps something you say to me or that I say to you fires us or inspires us, and something that is just an idea or an inspiration or a little spark can be fashioned into a ring, a bowl, a cup, a book, a film, a painting. Um, this is magical. And then if you study magic and understand the processes of magic, you can enhance your creativity, I believe. So that's one kind of magic. And, and, and there's a responsibility in that because, you know, of course, the world is, is so full of bad magic in terms of people creating all sorts of things that aren't helpful and perhaps are destructive and unhelpful. So, so there's an ethical dimension to the magic of making. But there's another kind of magic, which is the magic of, of questing of actually finding things, which is where you go on shamanic journeys or you go on inner voyages or you go on a quest to find healing, understanding, greater self-knowledge, awareness, um, particular pieces of information uh, for a particular project and so on. And that's a different kind of magic that requires a different te- different techniques and different abilities, if you like, which is what one learns when one trains in magic. Um, but that's probably enough. I've written about these three, the three different kinds of magic yes. in, um, in, in, a, in a little book that I've recently done, an audio book. It was tremendous fun. I did it with Stephanie, my wife, and my daughter, Sophia, and we recorded it with, um, with our friend Dave the Bard here. And it's available as an audio book. Yes. And it's called Druidcraft, The Magic of uh, Wicca and Druidry. And, and I talk about... Um, the different kinds of magic and the way one can understand it and so on. It's also a little Kindle e-book and a paperback as well. Okay. Um, does, that, does that all make sense? 
Oh, it's wonderful. And your magic is that you make me feel like dancing. <laughs> that's, that's lovely. That's very kind. <laughs> so we've... we've... And, and of course, you're making magic as well. You know, what, what is lovely is so many of us, you know, with your Future Primitive Project and, and your, your podcast, <clears throat> this is a way of kind of weaving a magic thread around the world. Yes, it is. Mm. It's wonderful. <laughs> so, Philip, um, we've uh, come to the end of um, our little conversation here. And... <laughs> I want to tell you how grateful I am that you've, you're taking the time to be with us and ask you, take a moment, and what would you like to say in closing? Uh, just as a, as, a, as, a closing, as a closing thought, um, just what comes to my mind straight away is just a, a, the image of a spark of light you know, a tiny little spark that you might get from a, a bonfire, you know, when there's a bonfire, mm-hmm. there's a little bright orange orange spark coming. And there's masses of darkness around, the night sky around. And, of course, that's the same as looking up at a star, and there's lots of black sky and all that. And we can love both. You know, we can love the darkness and the light. We can love what is not known and what is hidden from us. And we can love what is known and what is shown to us. And, and we can take joy in, 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 in both. And even when we're in the darkest times of our life, the most difficult times, we just have to think of a star or the little spark of light and just hold that in our hearts and our minds and our vision, and that will keep us going. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful.